Well, good morning, everyone. Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. I was actually going to say, let's start off with some jumping jacks to warm up, warm up but I don't think anybody want, really wants to move right now. So let's start off reading in Hebrews chapter 3. I'll read through the whole chapter, although we'll be spending our times in verses 1 through 6 and then 12 through 14. Hear now the word of God. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation, and they said they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient? So we see that we, they are not able to enter because of unbelief. The Lord will bless the reading of his word. The book of Hebrews, as you know, we don't know the author. I have hopes that it's Barnabas or even Phoebe who carried the letter to the Romans from Paul. I have hopes, but I don't know. What we do know is that the writer to the Hebrews was writing to this group of Hebrew Christians. So he says here in verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. He's speaking to this group of Hebrew Christians, and he's calling them brothers and partakers of a heavenly calling. Well, who are these Hebrew Christians? If you turn with me, to the uh, Hebrews chapter, Hebrews chapter um, five. I know your fingers might be uh, a little numb and not able to turn as good. 
Hebrews chapter 5, though, verse 12, it says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Some of these Hebrew Christians were immature. They only knew the basic things, and they, they ought to have been teachers by this point, and yet they weren't teachers. But here's also something helpful to see about these Hebrew Christians. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And if you scroll down to verse 32. Verse 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Some of these Hebrew Christians were being persecuted, and the kind of persecution that they were facing was that they were losing their property. Some of them had been imprisoned, and some of them were being called names publicly. Don't let it be said to you that being called names for your Christian belief isn't a form of persecution. Yes, it is not losing your life, but it is suffering for Christ when you're suffering this persecution for the name of Christ. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Keep your fingers in Hebrews chapter 10, though, because we're going to turn back there shortly. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 to 4, says the following. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Now you see these people were being persecuted and some of them, though imprisoned, though losing property, though being called names, they had not yet shed blood. They hadn't died for their beliefs. But in all of these cases, they were suffering hostility by sinners. And the writer here would say to them, he, to consider him, Jesus, so that they will not grow weary and lose heart. These Hebrew Christians were getting tired of it. They were being persecuted. They were joining with those who were being imprisoned. They were being called names. They still hadn't died for the cause, but they were growing weary. And then if you turn back to Hebrews chapter 10, where I had said, keep your fingers there. Hebrews 10, verse 25 not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day growing near. Now, these, this verse is often misused and has been misused like crazy during this time of COVID. Some of these people who were seeing the persecution, who were seeing the imprisonment, who were suffering the name calling, some people in this of this group of Hebrew Christians had left 
and they went back to the temple practices. They went back to the synagogue. They went back to Moses. They forsook the assembling of the Christian church because they were suffering persecution for the name of Christ. And they said, no, no, no. I've had enough of this. I'd rather go back to the temple practices where I wasn't suffering like this. Here, under Christ, I get to suffer at the hands of my own kinsmen, at the hands of Hebrews. They call me a fool, and I get to suffer at the hands of the, of the Roman citizens and the Greeks who call me stupid. This is crazy. I'd rather just go back to the temple practices and not have to deal with this. This way I'm safe. I don't lose my property. It's A-OK. -okay. So go back to Hebrews chapter 3 where we were at. So the writer's writing these people. He's telling them, listen. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, this is I want what I want you to do. While you're suffering, while you're under persecution, while you're being called names, while you're being imprisoned, here's what I want you to do. He does not say, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. Be courageous. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, stop. He doesn't say that. What he says is, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He doesn't turn their eyes to their situation, how bad it is. He turns their eyes to Jesus. Even those other passages where we read in Hebrews chapter 12 where he says, look, you haven't suffered to the point of losing your life. He says first, consider him who endured such hostility at the hands of sinners. So what the writer here does is first turn their eyes to Jesus. And then what he's going to do is something very expertly done. He's going to have to have them think about the comparison between Jesus and Moses. Because you know what? These people, what they had done by departing from Jesus, they went back to Moses as if it's all okay. Moses brought the law of God. That's pretty good. Moses was a prophet of God. That's pretty good. Moses led the children out of Egypt, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And he brought them to the very edge of the promised land. That's pretty good. Why not go back to Moses? Doesn't Moses worship the same God? He worships, he worships the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus is, I mean, yes, he's God, but he comes of the same God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it must be okay, right? Well, the writer to the Hebrews says, let's think about Jesus. He says, Jesus, he was faithful to him, God, who appointed him, as Moses was also in all his house. So he puts them both next to each other, and he says, yes, Jesus was faithful to God, and Moses was faithful to God. Now, as we're making this comparison, you have to ask, is it a fair comparison? After all, Jesus is God. How are you going to compare a mere human being 
to the God who created all things and upholds all things with his powerful word. Well, what's important to remember is the very words that the writer says. He says, consider Jesus, and he does not say, consider Jesus the God-man. He doesn't say that. He says, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. What does that tell you? That the Jews had an apostle and high priest of their confession as well. So what he's doing is setting up an apostle who is an high priest against another apostle who is a priest. And I would even, I wouldn't push too hard on it. I would even say Moses could function as a high priest. I won't have you turn there. You can write it down at your own. But Psalm 99 verse 6 where it says Moses and Aaron are among the priests what Moses and Aaron were among the priests do you remember what's the relationship of Aaron to Moses he was his brother right and do you know what family Aaron came from and Moses came from they were the sons of Levi and do you know where the family of priests come from the family of Levi do you know who was the first high priest Aaron of the family of Levi Moses's big brother and do you know who consecrated Aaron to be a high priest who offered the sacrifice and had Aaron, so the Aaron's robes were all cleaned and sprinkled blood on him? Do you know who did that in Exodus? Moses. Pretty impressive. Functioning as a priest. Offering a sacrifice. And having this one be situated, Aaron, as a high priest. But do you know what else an apostle is, as we consider now an apostle? Well, we know this, right? We learned this in Sunday school. An apostle is one who is sent. One who is, who is sent. But when we think about the apostles of God, they are ones who are sent with the very communication from God. Jesus himself, the writer argues in Hebrews 1 and 2, is functioning as an apostle in this way. He was sent by God to come bring the very message of God, but in this way, he wasn't speaking as a middleman. God spoke in times and, and passages in many forms and in many ways through the prophets and forefathers before in the past, Hebrews chapter 1, but in these last days, he spoke via Son, the one who is the very brightness of God's glory, the one who upholds all things by his powerful word, he was the one who spoke. God spoke via Son. So Jesus comes as the perfect representative of God, sent by God, representing God perfectly. Moses himself was also sent by God. Do you remember the words of God to Moses? 
when Moses was shaking in his knees in front of God and the burning bush and saying, Oh God, don't send me. Don't send me. I don't know how to speak. I have a speech impediment. Uh, why don't you? Well, can't you send somebody else? God says, you know what? I'll send Aaron to be your voice. But when you speak, you'll speak what I'm telling you to speak, and you're going to say it to Aaron. You will be like God, and Aaron is going to be like you. And when you speak to Pharaoh, I'm going to speak through you to Aaron. Moses was to represent God. And he was supposed to, he was sent by God to represent God. He was supposed to represent him to Pharaoh, and he was supposed to also represent him to the people. Do you remember what got Moses in such big trouble when he struck the rock? God says, you didn't properly represent me. You didn't consider me. So here's the writer to the Hebrews. He's comparing an apostle, Jesus, versus another apostle, Moses. And he's comparing a priest, a high priest, Jesus, versus another priest. And I would even say possibly a high priest himself, but I won't push it. Moses. He's comparing those two. And he says, check it out. They were both good. He, Jesus, was faithful to him, God, who appointed him. Just as Moses also was faithful in all his house. But here's the difference. He, Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Wait a second. If they were both faithful, if they were both apostles, if they were both priests, why does one get more glory than the other? Oh, because one's God. Oh, the writer will get there. He'll get there. And he's going to get there in the, just shortly. But he first establishes the point by using an illustration. He has been counted of worthy of more glory than Moses by just as much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. You know, houses are amazing things. You go into a house and you say, ah, what a beautiful house. This is great. But if you find out that the designer of the house is a famous architect, you don't say, ah, don't tell me the details. You say, has this architect done any other houses? What other houses has he done? There's a very famous architect who has made this house called Falling Water in Pennsylvania that sits over a waterfall. Amazing. And people go to this house and they pay a fee to go to this house. But no one sits there and says, well, that was a great house. I'm done with, I'm done with that. What they do is they say, what? Who built this house? Wright? Let me find more houses by Wright. And they drive miles to see other houses by Wright. Because the builder of the house gets more honor than the house. And then the writer says, every house is built by someone. When you look at a building, you don't look at it and say, Oh, I wonder when that building started growing there. Or when you're driving down the road and you see a development uh, that's been torn down, maybe there were some apple orchards there at one point, and you're driving down and you start seeing a, a, a mini-mart and a Walmart and those things, you don't say, oh, I wonder who planted seeds for malls and mini-malls there. You don't say that. 
you know that these things are built by someone. They don't just spring up out of the ground. Every house is built by someone. But the builder of all things is God. That's an amazing statement when you think about it. You know, we're sitting on a planet that right now is a little bit cool on this part of the, of the earth. Just because the planet is tilted a certain way in the direction from the sun. That's wild. And we find out that our sun is very hot. Extremely hot. And yet our sun is one of the tiniest stars out there in the galaxy. Scientists would tell us that our galaxy contains stars that are a hundred times bigger than our tiny yellow sun. That's amazing. And then scientists would tell us that there are galaxies out there that we don't even see. There's billions and billions of galaxies. How amazing is it that all of those things were created by God? You know, we're impressed when we see the size of it. But think about it. Even all the microbes and cells, God made those things. He made them all. We shudder in our homes, afraid of viruses, tiny little things. But God made them. The builder of all things is God. Does he get more glory than the things? Absolutely. Isaiah, in fact, at one point makes fun of people for elevating things over against God. He says, look at this man. It's an amazing thing. He goes out into his yard. He cuts down a tree. With part of the tree, he cuts it down, makes a fire to warm up his hands. With another part of the tree, he, sh he cuts it up and makes a chair and sits on it. And the other part of the tree, he carves it up and makes a god and bows down to it and calls it the creator of all things. And Isaiah's doing it as a joke. He's cracking up. Look how stupid these people are. It's crazy that you would do this. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying, of course, the one who builds all things is God. He gets more honor than everything. But that's not the only point the writer says. He made this point before about faithfulness. He says, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. The writer says, look, imagine a house. And in the house you have a butler. And your butler cleans the dishes. He opens the door. I don't know. Obviously, I don't know what it is to have a butler because I'm just assuming what the job is. Go with it, all right? Just, just follow along. He cleans the dishes. He, 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 he makes your meals. That's an amazing thing. He cleans your room. He cleans his room. An amazing thing to have a butler, right? And when a butler does his job, a good butler, you say, thank you very much, butler. You're awesome. And you pay him his check. You don't give him a tip. It's what you expect the butler to be doing. And when he answers the door, good. He was supposed to open the door. When he answers the phone, great. He answered the phone. Good job. You know what's funny? If your kid goes to his room 
and cleans his room without ever asking, what do we do as parents? What a great job! That's an amazing thing! Wow, that's fantastic! Do you, um, you're gonna get a prize. You're gonna get extra ice cream today. You go, you, you blow your lid. It's an amazing thing. When your son is faithful in your house, he gets more glory than the servant. Now, I, I don't know if any of you have butlers, so forgive me if the illustration doesn't land. But the point is that in that same way, Moses was faithful in all his house. Moses was a servant in the house for the testimony of the good things that were to come. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Get this. The son, Jesus, had no need to be obedient. He could have stayed in heaven. He could have stayed in heaven. The father and him would have been there and it would have been good and man would have perished. But no, no, no. The son was faithful and he was obedient, says Philippians chapter 2. He took on the form of a servant. Even though being God wasn't something to be grasped at for him, he was obedient. He took on the form of a servant and humbled himself. He came washing feet, the creator of all things. The creator of trees allowed himself to be pinned to a tree by creation, by man rising up in front of him. The one who was able, he says to Peter, to summon a legion of angels. And the father would have sent the angels, didn't. He said, Peter, I could summon legions of angels. I could do this. I can ask the father and he would send them to me. But you know what? So that scripture wouldn't be broken, I'm being faithful. He was faithful over his house. And the writer says, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. I'm not going to go off teaching now about losing your salvation or anything like that. If you're getting that out of this passage, you're getting the wrong point. The writer is saying here, look, true faith, just as other writers in other places talk about what true faith is, this writer is talking about what true faith is. So where James would say, true faith works. James says, you know what? If you want to show me your faith by just sitting there quietly, you can say that you believe, but I'll show you by what it is to believe by what I do. So James says true faith works. Paul says that true faith trusts. So when Paul's talking about the difference between works and faith, he says what true faith does, it clings to God for hope. It trusts God on the things he has says and clings to that hope unto salvation. And what this writer says, you know what true faith does? True faith holds on to the object of our faith. True faith holds on. So if a person comes along and they see Jesus and they trust Jesus right up until the point somebody calls him a name, and leaves, the writer says, I'm questioning that faith. Now, don't be surprised by this. 
Jesus says these same sorts of words when you read the book of John. So in John chapter 8, for example, there's certain people there that are listening and the text says that they believed. And Jesus turns to them and he says, oh, great, you believe. If you follow me, the truth will set you free. And these same believers, by the end of the chapter, are trying to stone Jesus. That's an issue. So the writer to the Hebrews here is saying, look, if you hold fast your confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end, hold fast that confidence and boast and trust and hope in Jesus, you are truly part of his house. Let's make this clear. When the writer to the Hebrews is speaking to them, he's saying, what you have done, you have left Jesus for something good. You've left Jesus for Moses. But when you leave Jesus for Moses, that good has become an evil. Look how the writer says this. Look at verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Do you hear that? Often we use this passage to mean, take care, brothers and sisters, that you don't go off drinking. Take care that you don't go off hanging out with wrong friends and bad influences. That's not what the writer is saying. He's saying, check it out. You have here believers, so-called believers, who have seen the wonders of God, who have seen the enlightenment of God, who have seen the confession of people, who have seen the confession from those who have told us this truth. We've seen this. These people have said they were believers, and when push came to shove, they said, I'm not having any of this. I'd rather go back to the way things were before. The writer says, even though that good thing was Moses, even though that good thing is going back to worshiping under the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob underneath that sacrificial system, which was good because God established it, now it's in opposition to Christ. And it is a rejection of Christ. And that is a falling away from the living God. Brothers and sisters, I'm using this, uh, this, we see this in this text, and we don't have a temple practice that any of us Gentiles are going to fall back to. But there's plenty of things that we can hold fast to that are good, and we can hold them in opposition to Christ. Allow me to use an example as a dark-skinned man. I know I'm speaking to a primarily light-skinned crowd, but as a dark-skinned man, I have heard fellow dark-skinned people sometimes say, if you don't love me as a dark-skinned person, I can't hear your message of salvation of Christ after that. Now, that's okay to hear from someone who's not a Christian, but I've heard Christian speakers say that. Now we got a problem. Loving someone, irrespective of the color of their skin, is a beautiful thing. Respecting people of different races, 
is a wonderful thing. We have all been made in the image of God. But dare not put Jesus Christ up against races as if one is better, as if races is better than Jesus. Jesus makes it possible for us to love across all colors of the spectrum. I've also heard it, if you allow me, from political parties on both sides. If you don't vote this party, I can't be, I, I can't even trust your belief in Christ. Really? Really, is that the case? I have to vote for your political pro party so that you can accept me as a brother? I thought all we needed was the confession of Christ. Now I say that as an independent, I'm not pro any party, just in case you were wondering. But the point here is that often we in today's world can find many things, many things that we can find a good in and hold them up against Christ and then in some awful cases, hold those things over Christ. And in that case, we have a serious issue. Any one of us can do this in our day to day. But what is the writer's solution? He began this chapter saying, consider him. Notice what he says here. He says in verse 13, encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Brothers and sisters, many of us can be tricked into thinking that our issue, whatever that issue is, can hold priority over against Christ. And the writer says, you know what's the solution here? You start acting by exhorting and encouraging one another. Encouraging one another. Exhorting one another. It's the same word here. And I don't want you to get confused because sometimes we think encouragement is only coming up to somebody, patting them on the back and saying, hey, you know what? I really like your singing voice. <laughs> that's encouraging, but that's not the deep sense of encouragement that's found in Scripture. Encouraging one another in Scripture sometimes looks like exhorting one another. It's the same word. Sometimes it's saying, what do you mean you're not going to work anymore? Get to work. That's from actually from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That, the, that Paul says, you know what you have to do sometimes? Admonish the idol. That's encouraging. And the writer says that he's doing this not because it's just a mere action. Look at this, verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me. Here's the point. As a partaker of Christ, as fellow brothers and sisters, you have partaken of Christ. You are now empowered to encourage one another. You're called to do it out of love for one another because you're a partaker of Christ. You know, it's difficult when we take the Lord's Supper now, nowadays with the, the whole virus thing. When we're not taking out of that one loaf because it's difficult to get the picture in our head, the fact that we are partaking of one body. 
It's difficult. But remember, COVID's only been here for a few months. You should still be able to remember that, yes, we did break one loaf. And we were partaking of one body, whose body we are, as Christ. And as that body, we are now able to look to the left and to the right and encourage one another today. Let me ask you a provocative question. When was the last time you reached out to your fellow brothers and sisters who you don't really get along with in the church? I mean, I'm not talking about the ones that you always get along with because you hang out with each other. What about that person who's just really annoying, who sits in that row? You know that row. Don't look in any direction. When was the last time you reached out to that person and not with a text, because texts are easy. When was the last time you called them up and said, hey, I was just thinking about you. I want to pray for you. Is there anything that I can pray for you about? When was the last time you did that? Don't answer. When was, but you know what's interesting when I ask that question? Some of us, maybe lots of us, we go, no one's done that for me. And we get all grumpy. No one's ever done that to me. Oh, oh, is that a reason then for you not to do it to others? Is that how it works? No one's reached out to you, so you're not going to start and reach out to others? Listen, loving one another as the body of Christ is loving one another because you know Christ has loved you. If Christ came near for you, who were altogether unlovely, who were altogether ungodly, who was in outright rebellion against him, how much easier is it for you to reach out to others who aren't even trying to crucify you? Very easy. I don't know how to love my brothers and sisters. I don't know where to start. I just don't understand how to do it. How do I start encouraging people who I'm supposedly loving when I don't even really know them? I mean, isn't it better if we first start having fellowship dinners or something to get, get to know each other before loving them? Well, that's not commanded in Scripture that you have to start really liking each other before you love one another. A perfect illustration of this that I find in my own family is children. You know, um, when I, ha I, I when I had a baby, right? Uh, not me, my wife. Uh, when we had children, no one had to teach those babies to love us, mom and dad. They just knew. Baby loves mom day one. Baby clings on to mom and hugs mom. And when mom enters the room talking, baby listens and, be, and, and gets quiet. Baby just knows mom and loves mom. And no one taught baby, hey, baby, this is how you have to love mommy. This is how you do it. No one did that. Baby just knows. And we understand that, right? It makes sense because mommy's been carrying the baby. The baby was born, so baby's going to love mom. But you know what else the baby knows how to love? Baby knows how to love his brothers and sisters or her brothers and sisters. Who taught baby how to love her brothers and sisters? No one taught baby. Baby, love your brothers and sisters. Love your brothers and sisters, baby. No one taught the baby that. Baby's holding on to mom. 
and baby looks to her right and to her left and there's other kids holding on to mom and baby just grows up naturally knowing this is my family I love them if someone has twins I think this is even clearer because you sit there and you just like look at the twins and you're like how do they get along and how do they fight and like they know each other like they've known always known each other they just do and yet we as adult Christians have a hard time figuring out that we're to love one another the same way when we're already loving and clinging to God brothers and sisters you are brothers and sisters look to the left and to the right every Lord's Day we come together we pray and we consider Jesus the Apostle and High Priest of our confession and we love him with that empowerment go love one another encourage one another here's some practical ideas and I'm going to use an idea that I'm stealing outright from Bill Ewan because this was amazing that he had said a, a year or so back he said and he I, I, I don't have any paper or stamps all right because I I don't go to the post office that, that often he came to our church and he gave us envelopes with stamps on them and he said why don't you go home this week Think about somebody, anybody in the assembly, write them a letter of encouragement, and here's a stamped envelope for you to put it in the mail. Amazing. I found that stamped envelope a year later. Did nothing with it. He put everything in my hand. But what an amazing idea. Oh, eventually I started writing letters too. Uh, but it was only recently. But what about, what an idea like that, reaching out to one another with something like that. You don't even have to have a big party. It's just sending a letter. It's an idea. Pick up your phone. We don't walk, none of us walk around without one of these. Communication's easier today than ever. How easy is it to swipe up and contact somebody? You can even say, hey Siri, call this person. You don't even have to dial the number and it'll ring them up. Let me stop Siri. She started listening. So I just wanted to encourage you with these words. Consider him, the apostle and high priest of our confession, and consider how you can stir one another up in love. The scriptures has a bunch of verses on this. You can go to Philippians chapter 2. Serving one another, just as Christ served, uh, Christ became obedient and served. You can consider Ephesians chapter 4 that you're put away anger, that you love. You can consider 2 Timothy 4, preaching the word to one another. You can consider 1 Thessalonians 5, admonishing each other. There's a lot of passages in scripture, but that doing is only empowered by the fact that you've considered Jesus Christ, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Let's close in prayer. Blessed Lord God and heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time where we can see these words that this writer wrote to these uh, Christians who were struggling and they were struggling um, with so many things. But the fact is that you would have them and ourselves turn our eyes to Jesus, turn our eyes to him and consider him. And then by considering him and considering the beauties of Christ, we can then consider how we can love and encourage one another. Oh, do have us do this while it is still cold today.
that we have so many opportunities just provoke us, uh, challenge us to do this today. Now as we go home our separate ways, we just ask that you protect us, uh, uh, um, give us a good day to consider these thoughts, we ask. In the name of Lord Jesus Christ, amen.